This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking through the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So this morning, uh, even the graphic for this week depicts what we just read and where we've come from last week. Last week, we started with creation, where everything that was made was poised for perfect flourishing. Everything was aimed and directed exactly as it ought to be. There was perfection, there was shalom, and then this. Now for us, uh, in Orlando and in the world, this summer has uh, been filled with tragedy. Tragedy that can be traced back to what we just read. And as I was thinking about this, uh, the one that's kept coming back to me, at least this week, was the alligator attack at Disney, where two-year-old Lane Graves uh, spent all day at one of the Disney parks. His mom told the police, she kept referring to him as my happy boy. And you just imagine, and it brings tears to my eyes to think about the fun that this little two-year-old was having, the family, uh, the fun they were having, and maybe they go and take a nap, and then they come and eat dinner, and then they're, they're on the beach at their resort, and there's a video projecting on the screen, and there's just a little bit of water right there on the water's edge, and he goes to play just like my little girls would have gone and played. And the irony in my mind is that this is Disney, Right? This, this is no surprise if we've read any of the articles. This, people have talked about this. this the contrast between what every, everything that Disney represents, everything that it w- makes us feel when we go in there, right? that all is right, that they've got everything on lockdown, that everything is controlled, that everything is beautiful, that everything is perfect. And we start to believe it at some level, but here it was a good evening. It, 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 was, it was great. It was happy. And then the unimaginable happens. This great intrusion on beauty, this great intrusion 
upon life and flourishing happened. And we know it was intruder. We know it was intrusion. We know that's not the way it's supposed to be. Right? In creation, there's an oughtness. There's a way things ought to be. And that is implanted so deep in us that when we hear and experience stories like this and even tragedy and story in our own life right now that we're all working through at some level, there is a deep understanding that this is not the way it's supposed to be. That evil, that sin is an intrusion into a good creation. That it has disrupted things. And so today, as we move from chapter one into chapter two, I want to take this head on. I I don't want us to turn our eyes from the comprehensive story, from the full story. I don't want us to euphemize evil or sin because the Bible doesn't do that. So if we're going to be faithful to the comprehensive story that gives us our place in the world, tells us what's wrong with us, tells us where we're going, then we have to look at every chapter. So the way I wanna do that today is I wanna ask three questions. The first question I wanna ask is, what is sin? What is it? Let's just start there. Now, if you've been catechized like me, uh, or you've all been catechized, when I say, what is sin? And if I asked you, you would give me an answer. For me, when I was on the floor of presbytery, Uh, taking my ordination exam, one of the questions to me was, uh, what is sin? Now, the answer, if if you've been catechized in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, is that sin is any want or conformity or transgression of the law of God. Well, the way you might say that, the way you've been catechized is, what is sin? You would say, maybe, well, sin is falling short. Sin is missing the mark, right? We've heard this before. And all of that is good, all of that is right and true, but for this morning, the way we're gonna look at this is we're gonna put it in a storied perspective. So those things are true, but then we're gonna ask it uh, a little differently. So look with me here uh, at the end. Well, if you have your Bibles, I'm just gonna read to you the end of chapter one and the end of chapter two before we go into Genesis chapter three. The end of Genesis chapter one, verse 31 says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's how chapter one ends. Chapter two ends this way. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. All right, so uh, Cornelius Plantinga wrote a book called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, a Breviary of Sin. Breviary just means a short account of. That book, besides the Bible, has had the most profound impact on my understanding of sin, my understanding of what it is, what it does in the world. And so I'm about to quote him, and I just have to say that I'm ripping him off even when I don't know I'm ripping him off when I'm talking about sin, all right? It's very helpful, and this is what he says. By starting the story at creation rather than the fall, Scripture proclaims categorically that sin is an intruder. It does not belong. And we see that right away, how chapter three starts, right? Chapter two just ended, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Everything is aimed towards flourishing. Shalom exists, right? Shalom is the perfect harmony, wholeness. So man to God, humanity to God, humanity to one another, and humanity to creation, 
All of these things are in perfect harmony. And then chapter three, out of nowhere, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Where in the world does he come from? In my mind, it's like when you watch a movie and there's, there are two couples talking and they're driving through an intersection and they get into the middle and you're, the camera is only on them and then bang, they hit right in the side. It, it, it shocks you, it's jarring. It's a complete intrusion on the scene. And it's, it changes everything. Everything changes from that point on. And so what we see is we see a complete intrusion into the story. Sin is an intruder that vandalizes shalom. That's what sin is. It's lots of things. This is one way we're gonna talk about it. It's an intruder into the story. It doesn't belong, right? And, and in fact, sin is anti-creational. What was creation? God was putting all things right. God was creating shalom. There was a certain uh, task he gave uh, humanity. There was a certain relationship that they had. And sin enters the world and it creates chaos where God had put order. It blurs the line between God and humanity. Sin of its very nature doesn't only intrude, it vandalizes and it's anti-creational. It's exactly the opposite of what God has in mind. So that's the first way I would answer what is sin in the storied perspective. The other thing that we see is sin is also, it's rebellion, right? Sin is rebellion. So what we see, sometimes theologians call this the great antithesis. Think warfare. At this point, as you read the beginning of chapter three, there is a war that's declared. And it's a war simply on obedience or disobedience. That's where the war is declared. You see, in your life, when you go to work tomorrow, there is no neutral territory. God lays claim to every aspect of your life, all of it. But so does Satan. You see, the whole story from this point on is a competing between two regimes. It's a warfare. That's what the Bible talks about. That's why we'll get to it in a little bit. Genesis 3.15, there has to be crushing, destroying of the serpent. There's no neutrality, right? This is utter rebellion at every level. So Adam and Eve, right, as, as they're doing this, if we just read the account. It's not as though they were walking through the garden and they fell in the sense that they kind of tripped into sin, right? So in that sense, it's not fall. We could say creation, rebellion, redemption, restoration. But you see, the point is there's this antithesis between obedience and disobedience and sin is rebellion because Adam and Eve chose to rebel, now go back to that answer, missing the mark, right? Sin is missing the mark. I think of archery. I don't know what you guys think of, but when I think of a, of a bullseye or a mark, I think of archery or some type of, uh, of sport-like archery when I'm missing the mark. And I think sometimes when we talk about sin in terms of missing the mark, what we can begin to think about is the reason we miss the mark is because we lack skill to hit it, right? So if I'm an archer, I'm not very good at it. I lack skill, so that's why I missed the mark. And that would be wrong. The way we talk about that is we do something wrong and we say, well, I'm only human. Please don't say that. That's the problem. You're not human. You're fallen. If you were human, you wouldn't want to do that. You wouldn't do that. It's not because you're human. I'll say that again. If you were human, you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have missed the mark. You wouldn't have loved the wrong things. 
There's nothing wrong with being human. The antithesis is not spiritual versus material or some disembodied versus embodied, right? That's a lie that we've taken in. The antithesis is obedience and disobedience. That's what, that's what the war is about. And there's no neutrality. And so the issue is not that we have lack of skill or information or knowledge. It's because we're aiming at the wrong target. That's why we missed the mark. We're aiming at the completely wrong target. And so sin is not an accident. Sin is a willful and culpable failure. It's aiming at the wrong target. So sin then proves catastrophic to all of creation. It intrudes and shatters shalom. So what have we said? It's an intruder that vandalizes shalom. It's rebellion. It's willful and culpable rebellion. It's aiming at the wrong mark. And it's hard to overemphasize this part of the Bible. Any, any pain that we experience, any kind of sin, suffering, even physical death, is an implication and consequence of what we just read. That's the story. It's really hard to overemphasize this, but, but what we do, I think, in our day is we sanitize sin, and I'm imagining um, hand sanitizer, right? It's like we get back from the park, and, and I'm just like, ugh, here, spray it on their hands, right? Do this. And, and I just think, oh, nothing bad can happen now. Right, nothing bad can happen now. Uh, we, we, I have this understanding, this view that um, that I, we've progressed in such a way that we have things like sanitizer that can just get rid of all the bad stuff. Right? We do the same thing to sin. We think, oh well, we've we're not as bad as people used to be. I mean, people used to have slaves. People used to own people. We don't do that. Well, we do actually. We still do that, but that's besides the point right now that I'm making. We find ways to sanitize sin. We make it more acceptable. We, we make sin about merely breaking a law like it's the speed limit, right? Ah, oh, everyone does it. Everyone sins just a little bit. Uh, as one author put it, uh, when we think about the parable that Jesus tells about the sinner and the tax collector and, uh, and, and the sinner says, God be merciful to me, right? A sinner, the way we might say that now is, God be merciful to me, a miscalculator. Right? I just, if I would have had more information, if I would have had more sleep, or uh, if I wouldn't have been so stressed out, I clearly would have made a different decision. But even in saying that, we, that's like adventures and missing the point. Because it's not even about behavior. That's another way of sanitizing sin. It's actually about our heart's disposition, right? It's not mere uh, behavior. It's disposition. It's characters. The Bible talks about sin in relational terms, right? When you sin, it's treason against a person, not some abstract rule to keep you in line. It's sin against a person. It's adultery, right? We have euphemisms all over the place, right? We call adultery an affair, like an affair is when my daughter spills juice on the ground, okay? That's an affair. It needs to be cleaned up. Adultery is, is not a euphemism. Adultery is the word given to describe the breach in relationship. We can't sanitize sin. 
We can't treat it as though it's an accidental miss. It's aiming at the wrong target. So this is what we've said so far. What is sin? Sin is an intruder. Sin is rebellion. And sin is a parasite. Sin is a parasite. Uh, what does a parasite do? Well, it, it leeches itself and gains life from some other entity. It doesn't really exist on, it own, it, on its own. It can't exist on its own. That, that's what evil is. That's what sin is. All right? Um, C.S. Lewis says it like this. Uh, and this is in mere Christianity. Goodness is, so to speak, itself. Badness is only spoiled goodness. And there must be something good first before it can be spoiled. St. Augustine before him in his confession said, evil has no existence except as a privation of good. So you see, uh, it's not as, sin is not presented in the Bible as some independent thing that offers a true alternative to goodness. Like they were merely equal and opposite things and you kind of need both to weigh it out. Like that's not Christianity. That's not the Bible. In fact, what the Bible says about sin is that it is a parasite that perverts good. I think most of the kids are out here. Let's use sex as an example, okay? So if you think about it, there are ways in which the church is as guilty of this as as anything, is we, we look at perversions of something like sex and we look at that and we say, therefore it's dirty or it's not good. When in fact... It's a, it's a wonderful gift given for the context of marriage between a man and a woman for joy and gratitude and love and intimacy. But yet when it's aimed in the wrong direction, aimed at the wrong target, you could say, it falls short in that sense of what God has designed it for. And so it goes on and on and on in the wrong trajectory. So the improper use doesn't negate or make bad the proper use. You see, in that case, the misuse of sex, whether it's to sell a cheeseburger or to tempt someone uh, out of a marriage, out of faithfulness, it's just a misuse of something that's good. Food is the same way. Can we misuse food? Yep, absolutely. But it doesn't negate the fact that food itself is a great gift given to us for us to enjoy and it builds community and it brings us around a common table. But yet, if we have guilt and fear and shame and we find ourselves overeating to medicate, then it's an improper use. And you see, that's what sin does. It's a parasite. And this is what happens to a parasite too, is that the way it brings death is it multiplies. Doesn't it? That's how cancer works. That's how, that's how things work. Think about this. I could tell stories about my kids, but I don't need to because it doesn't matter if you have kids or not. You know stories of nieces, nephews, friends. If you're a teacher, you've seen this happen. If you just pay attention in life, you see this happen. So if you walk up to a child and you catch them disobeying, right? That's a sin, right? They're disobeying. They know they're not supposed to do it. And you confront them on that and they say, they lie about it, right? So now they've just sinned upon sin, right? They've sinned and then they lied about sinning. And then you say, I saw you do it. And then they lie about the lying, right? So you sin first, then you lie about sinning, then you lie about the lying, and then you lie about the lying and the sinning, and it just keeps going. And it perpetuates itself. 
I've been told before, sin splatters. Just think about that imagery. Sin splatters. It just feels gross. So you drop something in water and it splatters and the ripple effect, you can't control them. That's what happens with sin. It kills because it reproduces. So sin is a parasitic intruder that vandalizes shalom and it causes willful rebellion to God's order and it, it is a parasite that perverts. So we've gotten into some of this, but now I wanna ask the second question head on and that's this. If that's what sin is, what are some of the things it does in our life, right? What does sin do? So first I would say sin disintegrates and pollutes. Look at me, verse seven. Let's look at it. After this conversation that the serpent has with Eve, Adam standing right there, who knows what in the world he's doing. Verse seven says, then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked. But this wasn't a good eye opening. Right Before they were naked and unashamed and now there's nakedness and we read on, there's fear of God and Adam goes from singing poetry about this beautiful woman that God gives to him. He says, oh, bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. It's the first love song ever written. And he goes from that to a few short verses later saying, God, that woman you gave me. What happened? What happened there? Well, sin polluted. Sin destroyed. Let's keep looking at this. So now they're ashamed of their nakedness. They're afraid of God. And we see as Adam and Eve's desire are aimed at the wrong target, their wholehearted trust in God was polluted by the introduction of these lies. You see how it's starting to connect together? There's an intrusion, there's disintegration. And so Adam and Eve now, their desires are pointed the wrong way. And this is how pollution works, right? It disintegrates things. So I could talk about the environment, which I will in a second, but some of us, I know, uh, you think about something as simple as your food, right? Some of you, you need your food not touching. And the reason you don't want it to touch, you can't imagine it mixed, is because it, like, this pollutes this and it, it ruins the integrity of this part of the food, right? So I used to be like that and then I got help and now I'm not like that anymore. <laughs> but some of you are still like that and that's what you know pollution does. Now, if you look in the environment, pollution is a third thing introduced into a system that is just going fine. But what happens when the pollutant is introduced to the system of any type, whether it's a relationship or an ecosystem, it starts to disintegrate. It starts to destroy it. It starts to move things apart. And that's what sin does. I mean, think about idolatry just for a second. The Bible talks about idolatry a lot. And idolatry at its simplest is a pollution of our worship. It's a contamination of our worship. Something else has entered in between this relationship, between me and God, and it pollutes it. And a pollutant is always like a wedge. It's shaped like a wedge and it functions like a wedge. You drive the wedge in and what happens? Things separate, things disintegrate. This is why adultery is so horrible because it doesn't just disintegrate, it also pollutes 
It pollutes the relationship. And by adding the third party into the relationship, it serves as a wedge between the husband and wife. And it pollutes it. It disintegrates things. So what happens is that what does a wedge do to worshipers is that it divides their loyalty and destroys the worshiper. And what does a wedge or pollutant do to lovers? It divides their loyalty and destroys the lover. That's the way sin works. That's what it does in our life. So if sin is this bad, why do we keep doing it, right? I mean, that sounds horrible. Why do we keep engaging in it? Well, that's the the other thing I wanna say that sin does. It does this, it deceives and it perverts. The writer to the Hebrews says, encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today. Emphasis there. So that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So deceit, deceive, what does is, what is deceit do? Right? Deceitfulness, deceit, uh, deceive someone by concealing the truth or misrepresenting the truth. And we see that all over the place in chapter three, don't we? And all throughout the Bible. There's, there's a packaging of sin with a shiny wrapper and it deceives people and they, they sort of take it in. So in our passage, we see how deceitful the serpent is, right? He's concealing the truth. He's hedging his words. You know, when, when I find uh, sin patterns in my life uh, that are deceiving me, um, it's almost like my senses awake to true reality once I'm faced with the sin pattern. And I tried to think about it a way that I would describe it, and it's kind of like this to me. You know, when you stay in a hotel or in a rental car and, and you get in, right, and there are no smoking signs everywhere, and the first thing you smell is air freshener. And then quickly, you're like, ugh, what is that? And you realize the air freshener is masking something. Usually it's cigarette smoke. And no apologies to smokers. It's disgusting. (laughs) It smells horrible. And the only thing that smells worse than cigarette smoke is cigarette smoke trying to be covered up by really cheap air freshener. Right? It's like trying to deceive me. It's like, I don't think so. I need a new room. Thank you. Okay. That's the way I find sin is like that, right? Um, It deceives me by masking. But sometimes I'm not so acute and my smell is not working very well. And I want to ignore the the physiological realities of why if I'm in the car long enough, I no longer smell it. I'm not going to talk physics and all that right now. Just go with me for the illustration. If if you're in the car and you, you don't have a choice, you just keep sitting in it and you don't smell it anymore. Right? You, you don't smell it anymore. Sin also works that way. You just ignore it long enough and you just don't smell it anymore. And you're duped. And things aren't so bad, right? Things are okay. But in fact, to change analogies, what we do is we, this is a hard word to say, anesthetize ourselves. Anesthesia. What does anesthesia do? Well, it can put you to sleep, right? Um, It also can deprive you of your awareness of something, right? Whether it's in a certain part of the body or in general, it, it makes things so that it deprives you of certain levels or all levels of awareness of what's happening. Pain, a lot of us have a lot of pain 
And one of the ways we minimize pain is by medicating, whether it's food or, well, what is it for you? What do you run to for anesthesia, for medication? Is it gossip? Is it self-righteous anger? So you feel better about yourself when you feel the pain? Is it, um, is it pornography? Is it uh, an unhealthy infatuation with sports? What is it? How do you escape reality? And by the way, the argument that I get sometimes on this is, well, fiction books have been doing that forever. It's like, well, as long as they take you higher up and higher end to reality. Don't tell me. We just, we just read, we're reading a Voyage of the Dawn Treader by C.S. Lewis. That's fiction, but you know what that does to me? It takes me higher up and higher end. It makes things more real. It doesn't anesthetize me to life and to pain. So there is a difference. So ask yourself, what, how do you medicate? Well, I think one of the ways we do it the most, the way we're deceived in our world is distraction. We have so many ways to distract ourselves. There's like 10 ways that I thought I was gonna go in the sermon and I decided we're gonna do this. We're gonna go distraction. I know many of you read George Orwell's book, 1984 in school at some point, right? So it's this doomsday prophecy of how uh, culture would destroy itself in the future. And the idea was that there would be oppression from Big Brother outside. And, and then a, a, a well-known but lesser known and a little bit older book by uh, Aldous Huxley uh, written called A Brave New World, he offers a slightly different take, right? And then 1984 came and went and nothing really happened And then Neil Postman, his now classic book, Amusing Ourselves to Death, uh, he describes the difference between Huxley and Orwell, okay? Now, in the introduction to that book, it's so helpful at leading us to the point that I want to make. I'm just going to quote him at length, okay? This is the introduction to Amusing Ourselves to Death. He starts by describing the difference of their prophecies. He says, quote, Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally opposed impression, oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. Orwell feared those who would ban books. Huxley feared that there would be no reason to ban a book because there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much information that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. We could say that uh, we only listen to people who say what we want them to say. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared that truth would be drowned in the sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would become a trivial culture preoccupied with some equivalent of the feelies, the orgy-porgy, and I have no idea what this is, the centrifugal bumble puppy. (laughs) I was gonna Google it, but frankly, I was a little afraid. (laughs) Some things you can never unsee, right? 
Huxley remarked that the civil libertarians and the rationalists who were ever on the alert to oppose tyranny failed to take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. In 1984, the book, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In a brave new world, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. This book is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. You see, distraction is all around us. It's, it's almost impossible not to be distracted. I think to make my point in our day, in the culture around us, the main way we become anesthetized to sin is by distracting ourselves. I think in this anesthesia, Satan is steering us to consume a life of vain distraction and amusements that mute us as human beings. Right? It hurts to be a human being in the fallen world. I think that in our fear of death, in our fear of not mattering, in our fear of boredom, that's actually what drives us to Netflix binges and self-consumed lives. That's from my autobiography right there. There are a million ways. Why would... Why would Satan come to you in a snake when he can be like, Netflix? No emails, please, about Netflix. I have Netflix, it's fine. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Okay? In the fall, we've lost our way. We've lost our way, we've lost our orientation, and our orientation should be to God, but we've turned inward with a twisted, perverted view of what will bring us pleasure and what will bring us fulfillment. And because of that, we're bored. So what happens now, right? Uh, What happens now in the story? I mean, we read this, everything was fine. Adam and Eve sin, they rebel. It, it It shatters shalom. It perverts everything. It disintegrates everything. It's a parasite on everything that is multiplying out of control. So what happens? And this is where I want to end with the third question. uh, What does God do? So we said, what is sin? What does it do? And now what does God do? Because really, isn't that the most important thing? What is God going to do? Last week, we said that the Bible is a theodrama. Right? It's, it means theo is a Greek word from God and drama comes from the Greek word to do. So the Bible is a book about what God is doing. We are only the supporting actors. Okay? We're, not, we're not the stars of the story. It's not an anthrodrama, I guess that's what you'd call it. It's not about man. It's primarily about what God is doing in the world. So that means we should care about how Adam and Eve respond, but we should really pay attention to what does God do? Right? What is God gonna do? Let's look and see what he does. Look at this. They're hiding, okay? How ridiculous is that? They're hiding. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord, what did he do? This is so important. This, this right here tells us everything. Well, that's not true. 
That's hyperbolic. It tells us a lot about what God is going to do in the rest of the story. What does he do? Does he yell at them? Does he scold them? Does he beat them and whip them and mock them and laugh at them for hiding? Look at you. you, that's so cute. No. He asks them a question. Where are you? Do you think he asked that because he didn't know where they were? So for you in your life, where are you? Where are you? That's what God wants to know. In our sin, in that place, in our disinterest, uh, very few things, uh, anger used to really scare me. When I got angry, I used to be scared because I think anger is immature, okay? And I muted that part of me. And then I realized that that made me afraid. And so nothing really scares me right now as much as when I feel disinterested, particularly towards God. And when I read this, I hear God saying, where are you? Where are you? He's not coming down to grab me by the arm and put me in time out. He says, where are you? What is that? That's an invitation. Come to me. Where are you? And that's what he says to Adam and Eve. Where are you? And what do they say? And he said, I I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. And God said, are you stupid? No, you were always naked. This is what he said. Who told you that you were naked? Who are you listening to? Who's defining you? Who told you that? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? Now, what is God doing? He's drawing them out. This is an offer of restoration. This is come back, come to me. I'm drawing you out. And every day, I think God in Jesus Christ, which we'll see, is asking us, where are you? Who told you that? Why do you believe that? Come to me. This is Plantinga, the author. He says, we see that God refuses to give up on Shalom. We see the passionate resolve of God. God wants Shalom and will pay any price to get it back. You see, this could have been a really short story. Creation, fall, death, start over. Or just drop the whole thing altogether. But that's not the story. Plantinga says, human sin is stubborn, but not as stubborn as the grace of God and not half so persistent and not half so ready to suffer to win its way. The Bible is clear that evil is a coward. Evil will run. Evil will not suffer. Evil will not sacrifice. Only love does that. Sin is only a parasite, a vandal. And the Bible offers us in the grace and mercy of God where it pinnacles at the the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in this story, we find mercy and love in a comprehensive story. We have a story that looks at the horror of sin and it doesn't turn its gaze. It looks right at evil. It looks right at brokenness. It looks right at pain. It looks right at sin. 
And it reminds us over and over without minimizing horror. It holds forth the promise that the story is not about sin. It's about saving. So chapter two matters. But if we stop at chapter two, because it is so immediate, it's so palpable, we won't understand the next chapter. Chapter three, redemption. As Plantinga says, the center of the story is the savior. But what the fall always reminds us of is that grace always comes with blood on it. Love sacrifices, love pursues, love gives. And God is love. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you asking you for help. So much, I just said so much, and this is such a horrific reality in this world we live in. Help us not feel trapped in our brokenness. That's a temptation, I think, to, to be defined by what we do wrong. But help us, lead us to answer your call of where are you? That we would run to you knowing that overwhelmingly the center of the story is love and sacrifice. And we throw ourselves into the arms of Jesus. So I pray as we respond and reflect that you would gently call us in certain areas back to you and you would ask us gently, where are you? Who told you that? And that the answer would always lead us back to the cross, the death, the resurrection, and the promise of new life. It's in Jesus' name we pray.